Would you stand with me as we read from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20? Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Holy Spirit, we cannot open the word without you being present here. And we're grateful for that. Holy Spirit, come and be our teacher here this morning. We ask that as we consider this subject of making disciples, that our eyes would be firmly fixed on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, our perfect shepherd. We know we can't fail. When we walk in obedience, that is success. So, Father, help us in the Holy Spirit to walk in obedience to this commission given to us by the Son. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, I'm going to use the word discipling today in place of what many of us would use the word discipleship. And I just want to take a moment to explain why I use the term discipling rather than discipleship. Christianity is discipleship. If you are a believer, you are a disciple. There's no such thing as being a Christian and not being a disciple. Discipling, however, is an extension of that, and it is something that we as Christians are called to do. With that in mind, and I'm going to get into a definition of discipling a bit later, but with that in mind, I want us to begin with this foundation, Christ's authority is why we make disciples. Jesus said in in Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And before we move on to the remainder of our text, I just want to take a few moments to unpack that. All authority. The work of God always comes before our work. Are you tracking with me? We don't do and have God respond. Anything we do in the Christian life is a response to what God has done. I'm I'm a bit of a broken record on this, but I want you to memorize this phrase, the indicative before the imperative. If I don't say it every time I preach, it'll be pretty close. It'll be at least most of the times that I have the opportunity to share the word. The indicative, what God has done, always comes before the imperative, what we are commanded to do. We see this in the Ten Commandments. I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Before we get the Ten Commandments, before we even get the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before you, we have Yahweh telling Israel, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before you. This is the same pattern we see in the words of Jesus. Before he says, therefore, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
therefore go. We'll get into the go in just a minute. I want to turn your attention to Psalm 110, the first verse of Psalm 110. An interesting little tidbit, and my friend KJ will know this. That psalm is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament by far. There are a lot of psalms. There's a lot of Old Testament references cited in the New Testament, but Psalm 110 is cited far and away more than the other Old Testament citations. Psalm 110 says this, and this is my paraphrase, because what you'll see in your Bibles is, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. That's a little confusing. You know what I'm talking about. We've had this conversation. It literally means Yahweh, the personal name of God, Yahweh, when you see the the all caps Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, says to my master or to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This was God the Father promising God the Son his inheritance. What is Christ's inheritance? Look around. Us. So we find here in the Great Commission that Jesus acknowledges this promise kept by his Father. He says to the disciples, all of the nations are mine. Now go let them know it. That's what the Great Commission is all about, brothers and sisters. That's what discipling ministry is all about. And this discipling ministry is a ministry that each and every one of us are called to. The nations are Christ's. Now go let them know it. Any theology that begins and ends with man will not get us near God. We're not merely commanded to do something without being given a reason. That reason is not man. That reason is not us. That reason is Christ alone. So with this foundation in mind, let's look at a couple of the, uh, the, the points in what Christ commissions his disciples to do. So Christ's commission in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, there are really four parts to what is called the Great Commission. Go is first. Make disciples is second. Third is baptize them. And fourth is to teach them. And we're going to look at those four subcategories of this commission. So the first one is go in verse 19. This is unsurprisingly one of the most misunderstood parts of this passage and verses in Scripture because it is used almost exclusively in reference to foreign missions. Because we hear go, and we hear something about the nations, and so we think this must be a passage about foreign missionaries. Now, don't get me wrong. There is not only nothing wrong with foreign missions. It's a a necessity. We wouldn't be sitting in this room today if it weren't for foreign missionaries. Somebody brought the gospel here, right? So absolutely, it's an important aspect of Christ's command to go, that includes going abroad, but it doesn't primarily mean that. And it certainly doesn't mean only that. In fact, the word that we have simply translated as go really implies as you go, or in your going, make disciples. 
Maybe it would be helpful for us to consider the antonym of go. If Jesus said stop, well, that doesn't mean anything besides ceasing from going. So as long as we're not stopping, we're going. So in our going, we're called to make disciples. Anybody interested in getting into how we do that? Okay, you guys, you, you were real talkative at the front, and now you're kind of getting quiet. You can yell at me. That's okay. So this brings us to our uh, second part of this commission. After the 11 are told to keep going, in your going, as you go, Jesus tells them why. We go to make disciples, in verse 19. I said a couple weeks ago in my sermon on Jesus' high priestly prayer from John 17 that one of the main reasons we're given to muddle through this tough life is to be part of God's mission. I shared the story about the girl who wondered if Jesus would be okay with it if she took her own life. And the the minister told her, um, well, he asked her why she would think that. She said, well, you know how hard my life is. And he said, listen, the reason that God puts us on earth is to be part of his mission. And that little girl took that advice and ultimately ended up leading her parents to faith in Christ. So Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 18, as you, Father, sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So why doesn't Jesus just take us out of the world? Because God has chosen to use us, his people, as the means to build his kingdom. To reach people with the gospel. It's like Paul says in Romans 10, 14. How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Do we just assume that if someone is going to come to faith in Christ, that somehow miraculously it will happen? Now, salvation is a miracle. It's the regenerating of a, a dead person. It's a stony heart being replaced with a heart of flesh. That is a miracle. But God has chosen a means to achieve that ends. We are that means. So what does it mean to make disciples? I want to recommend a book to you uh, by Pastor Mark Dever. He's a pastor in Washington, D.C. He wrote this little book on discipling. I've borrowed much of the content for my structure today. Pick this book up. You can get it online for $8. If you buy it in stores, it's a little bit more expensive. Um, We're going to be ordering a a case of them. uh, So if you want to grab one and you can't afford it, you let us know and we'll get this to you. But in this book, Mark Dever uh, helpfully defines discipling. And tune into this. I like his definition. Doing deliberate spiritual good to one another so that we become more like Christ. So given that understanding of discipling, do you think that discipling is optional for us? Do you think that you have the choice to say, I'm a disciple, but I'm going to opt out of discipling? No. It's not merely common for a disciple to do deliberate spiritual good to others. It's commanded. It's expected. It's the imperative. We've been given a cure for death. 
how selfish would it be for us to keep that cure to ourselves? This is what discipling is. So before we move on to the how of discipling, I want to encourage you with this. Jesus doesn't command us to make converts. He commands us to make disciples. And there's an important difference. The work of conversion is the job of the Holy Spirit. I don't care how eloquent you are. I don't care how compassionate you are. You can't save someone. I remember when I was probably eight or nine years old, and I was in a 4-H club. And I had a friend who was also named Dan. And I pestered Dan nonstop about becoming a Christian. And I probably did it very poorly. I was, you know, seven or eight or whatever. So I probably wasn't explaining it very well, but I knew that he needed Jesus, and I wanted him to know Jesus. I was a little seven or eight-year-old discipler. But my, my shallow understanding of that showed when my friend Dan prayed a prayer with me and made a profession of faith in Christ, literally in a sandbox. We were playing in a sandbox. And I, I was so excited when I came home and I told my mom, Mom, I saved my friend Dan. And, you know, she was happy, of course. She smiled and she goes, well, you, you led him to Christ. You didn't save him. Jesus saves him. That's an encouragement to us. Jesus doesn't call us to save people. We're bad saviors. We're horrible. It's impossible. But he's called us to make disciples. Remember, as we alluded to a few weeks ago, that even Judas was a disciple. He clearly was not a convert. He still had a heart of stone. And Jesus knew it all along. And yet he discipled him. There may be discipling relationships in your life where you you pour yourself out as a drink offering like Paul talks about. And you invest time and energy and money and study and prayer in a person and they turn and walk away from the Lord. Don't be discouraged when that happens. Keep discipling. Keep going. When someone abandons their profession of faith in Christ, God is not surprised. We mourn. We pray that God would bring them to him. But God's not surprised. It is not our job to make converts. It's our job to make disciples. So because all authority is Christ's, we obey and we we make disciples and we leave the heart transplant to the Holy Spirit. So far we've asked why. The why is is Christ's authority. We've asked what, and the what is making disciples, which brings us to the how. And Jesus tells us how to make disciples. It's twofold, baptizing and teaching. So before we get into the teaching part, I want to spend a few moments on baptizing. In verse 19, Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Is baptizing something that the average Christian can or should do to another professing believer? Bit of a tricky question because we we see it happen sometimes. But normally, the ordinance of baptism is something that we do together as a body. So when someone is baptized in that pool, 
They don't just come in here in the middle of the week with one other person and get baptized. They come and they stand before the people of God and they say, Jesus has saved me. And we say something back to them. We say, we're with you. That's why we baptize publicly. That's why we don't do it privately. So when Jesus tells us that part of the work of making disciples is baptism, he's telling us something much deeper, that it involves the church. So again, here's another great encouragement to us as we go out and we make disciples. You're not alone. You're going to stumble sometimes in the discipling process. The person that you're in a discipling relationship with is going to ask you questions that you're not going to know the answer to. But you've got a community. And you can say to that person, I don't know the answer to that question. Let me find out the answer and get back with you. That's a much better answer than just blowing steam. It's, um, it's comparable, I think, to the symbol of a wedding ring. This wedding ring, or the tattoo under my wedding ring with Amy's initial on it, neither of those things make me a married man. They symbolize something. Yes? You could go on Amazon this afternoon and order a, a, a ring the size of your left ring finger and wear that ring. It's not going to make you married. What makes you married is the covenant that you made before God and man. So likewise, you may have been baptized, but if you aren't actually in Christ, the symbol doesn't do anything magical for you. Now, it's an important symbol, but without the reality, it's just a pretense. The significance in our baptism is found in what we're being baptized into. We're baptized into the community, but primarily we're baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The part and parcel with that is this community that comes along with that because we've all been baptized into that name. So when someone else is baptized into that name, they get us thrown in. For better or worse, they get us thrown in. And the point I'm getting at is this. Discipling is not just you and your friend doing a book study. That might be part of it, That might be a big part that the Holy Spirit really uses to sanctify each other, but that in itself is not discipling. It's an aspect of discipling. Discipling necessarily includes being ingrained in the life of your fellow believers. Now, this has at least two elements that I want to consider. One is being here, and the second is serving. Hebrews 10.24 tells us, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The objective is helping one another to be more like Christ. How can we do that if we're not together? Do you see how logical discipling is when we look at it through the lens of Scripture? It's important that we're together. It's not legalistic that we're together. It's not saying that if you miss a Sunday here or there, that you're no longer in God's good graces. That's ridiculous. That's opposed to the gospel. But it's encouraging to know that Jesus says, I've given you an entire community of people, and not just the 175 or 180 of us that sit here today. We have a fellowship with the believers that spans centuries and continents. 
but we get to be a part of that together here in one place each Lord's Day, and it's important that we don't abandon that. When we gather, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14, each one, not just some of us, but each one has a gift. The really obvious ones are the ones that you see pretty visibly. And it's easy for us to think, well, Pastor Dan's the gifted one because he can lead us in song or he can preach, but I'm not gifted. That's garbage, brothers and sisters. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 14, says, when you gather, each one has a gift. Did you, when you came in, did you have a donut or drink some coffee? Someone with the gift of helps made that possible. Do you have a a worship guide in your Bible or in your lap this morning? That's because someone with the gift of administration made that possible. And there are countless other opportunities right here at Grace Family Fellowship for you to serve. In fact, this is a bit of an aside. Uh, Some of you may have seen on our social media this week that I shared a link to a new page on our website. If you are not serving yet at Grace Family Fellowship, I'd like to invite you to serve here. There's lots of need and there's lots of opportunity. And in a church our size, there should be no shortage of people stepping up to serve. Now, we have a lot of really faithful servants, and I am deeply grateful for them. But if, you are no, if you're not in service right now, I want to invite you to prayerfully consider where you might serve. And so what you can do is visit gracefamilyph.com slash getinvolved. And there's just a quick, brief form to fill out. And you can tell us what areas of ministry you think you'd like to serve in. And I'll make a promise to you. We'll be real honest with you. If you say you want to serve in the worship ministry, and you come and sit in my office and we jam a little bit musically together, and you can't sing, I'll let you know. But we'll find a place for you to serve that uses your God-given gifts. And I'm not like Simon on the old American Idol. I'm, I'm much kinder than that. But I want to encourage you, if you're not serving, this is part and parcel of discipling. It's part and parcel of being in community with the body of Christ. You see, we don't believe in inactive members of the body. We don't believe in atrophied members of the body of Christ because, as I've already said, Jesus cares about the health of his body far more than we do. And when there's a part of the body that is growing weak or growing atrophied, part of the community is to come around them and say, how can we make you strong? And part of being strong in Christ is serving. Can you believe this is all under the category of baptism? But it is, and I want for our understanding of baptism to go deeper. When we're baptized, we're not just given the covenant sign. We're given the community that comes with it. Discipling is bigger than just you or I riding with Jesus off into the sunset. When you're given that covenant sign, you're given a family You're part of a body. One of the most effective forms of discipling someone is folding them into the patterns of your life. I said it's not just doing a book study with someone. That might be part of it, but a more important, a more integral part of discipling is calling a friend that you want to do deliberate spiritual good for and say, hey, I'm running the Sam's Club. Do you want to hop in the car with me? Or calling a friend and saying, 
hey, the kids are home from school today. Do you want to come over while I fix lunch? And let them watch you make mistakes. It's encouraging. This leads us into uh, the second aspect of making disciples, and that's teaching them. Jesus says in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. We see this modeled in the life and ministry of Jesus. He wasn't only discipling the 12 when he was giving them some formal teaching. This is an important part of discipling, brothers and sisters. The ministry of the word is really the central part of discipling, but it's not the only part. And there are tentacles that reach out from that. He taught them in life as they walked with him. He folded them into his life. So the 12 disciples watched as he responded to a multitude of different situations. In John 6 is one of my favorite uh, passages when after Jesus tells an enormous crowd that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood. Unsurprisingly, thousands of them left that day. See, we have a grid for this because we receive the Lord's Supper every month or so. We know that that was a picture that Jesus was giving. They didn't get that. So here is Jesus standing before literally not just 12 disciples, but thousands of disciples. And he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, peace, I'm out. Like, (laughs) I'm not down with that. That's weird. And Jesus looks at the 12 and he says, do you want to leave now too? And Peter says, where else would we go? You alone have the words of life. They knew Jesus on a deeper level because they were folded into the patterns of his life. So we invite our our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ, into our life in an uncomfortable fashion. Sisters, when you invite a sister over to your house, do you beat yourself up because your house isn't perfectly clean? Guess what? The people you're having over who see that bit of dog fur on the floor are massively encouraged by that. Because in a really healthy way, they think, I'm not the only one. See, I I elevate this person to a higher status. I think that they're a better Christian than I am. And they, they deal with some of the same issues that I do. Brothers, I alluded to bringing them along to Sam's Club or Costco with you, or if you, if you bring an apprentice along in your work, if there's a young man at your job who is a Christian and he watches the way that you live at work when things don't go your way, when you lose your temper, that young believer watching your life is going to be encouraged by that because he's going to see how you respond. He's going to see you preach the gospel with your life, whether it's a pile of dog fur in the corner of the house or a lost temper at work, the way we respond to those things preaches a gospel to them. Let it be the gospel of the grace of Christ, brothers and sisters. Because God's power is made perfect in our weakness. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. So don't only attempt to lead, don't only attempt to disciple in your strength. Disciple through your weakness. Jesus tells the 12 to teach their disciples that they're going to make to observe all that I've commanded you. So it's not just 
teaching with our lives. We also have to teach with our words. You may be familiar with the, the old adage, preach always and when necessary use words. Preaching the gospel always requires our words. I can point you to at least a dozen unbelievers who are more upright than I am. So we've heard probably for years live in such a distinctive way that people come to you and ask you, what's different about you? I want what you've got. Well, if that happened with my neighbor, Adam, he is kind, he's generous, he's thoughtful. He's the guy who, when I'm working in my yard, I'm I'm cutting branches, or there was a couple summers ago where I was jackhammering up a patio, he was over there in a heartbeat to help me out. But it wasn't because of faith in Christ, because he's not a Christian. So he lives in such a distinctive way that if somebody went to him and said, Adam, I want what you've got, what's he going to tell him? He didn't have Jesus. So he's going to tell him, yeah, I just, I just try really hard. I do better, I try harder, and I pull myself up by my bootstraps. And he does a darn good job of it. I love Adam. But that's not going to bring him into the presence of God in eternity. He needs another mediator, Jesus. So preach with your words, too. And preach that gospel that, hey, look, I'm not saved because I'm perfect. Somebody tells you Christians are hypocrites, you say, yeah, a lot of us are, myself included. But I'm not saved because of my own righteousness. I'm saved because of a foreign righteousness that's been imputed to my account. This means that we need to be intentional about having spiritually significant conversations. Sometimes that looks like seeing sin in a brother's life and being willing to call it out. Are we willing to do that? It's hard work. And there's, there's an implication to it. If you see a brother in sin, the call to us from Galatians is to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That means calling out the sin for what it is, calling for repentance, But it also means that you have then just opened yourself up to be called out when you're in indwelling sin too. That's the part that's really hard. Because we can see someone in sin and go, I really don't want to have this conversation, but because I love them, I'm going to do deliberate spiritual good for them. And I'm going to say, look, um, I saw the way that you responded to that situation. For me, just recently, it was my wife calling me out for having anxiety. Anxiety is a sin. Now, don't get me wrong. Anxiety attacks are a real thing, and we need to trust the Lord with those. But Scripture commands us to be anxious for nothing. And I was anxious. And my wife loved me well enough to say, Dan, you're not trusting God. She said it even nicer than that. But the Holy Spirit used it, and I repented. But that has to go both ways because once we do that, once we work up the nerve to be able to call out a brother who is walking in ongoing sin, whether they're aware of it or not, we're telling them, I want you to do that for me too. Because we haven't arrived. Here's the beautiful thing about mutual correction in the Christian life, in discipling relationships is when we're willing to do it, in the power of the Holy Spirit, it prevents the need in many, if not most cases, uh, where church discipline may become necessary. 
You know what I mean by church discipline? Where we would say we know that someone is in ongoing sin, and so they, they may not receive communion. They can come and hear the preaching of the word, so they receive some of the benefits of fellowship. But when you continue on in intentional sin, it comes to the point where they can no longer come to the Lord's table because Scripture calls us to discern the body, to examine ourselves. And so it's the job of the elders uh, to what's called fence the table. And so in mutual correction in the Christian life, it prevents the need for those. That's honestly why we don't see a lot more church discipline is because brothers and sisters come alongside one another and they say, you've got to get that straightened out, man. You're in Christ. You can't go on sinning. Like Paul says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. So among other valuable lessons that we've learned here at Grace over the past month or so, we've learned that we will fail. We will let each other down sometimes. Even your leaders, your human leaders anyway, will disappoint you. If I haven't disappointed or frustrated or offended you yet, just give it some time. It'll happen. And you know why? Is because I'm still very much in process, just like you are. Often in the church at large, we tend to elevate our leaders to a position that is higher than where they actually are. I like to say that the reason God made me an under-shepherd or a pastor is because I'm one of the sheep that he knows if he didn't give me a job to do, I'd wander off. I need you. We need each other, but I'm not in a separate category where I'm a pastor, so I don't need you. I need you badly, guys. I don't need you any worse than we need each other, though. We need one another. But we will fail each other. And how will we respond when we do that? I think that we've seen an example of that over the last month. I think that this family has responded immensely well to feeling betrayed. But it's because our hope was not in our human pastors. Our only hope is in Christ. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace when fears are stilled. When striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. We don't stand because of another fallen human's love for us. You don't stand because your pastors and elders love you, though they do. We do so very imperfectly. You don't stand because of your love for others. You don't stand even because of your love for Christ. Because guess what? Even that's fickle. No, we stand because of Christ alone and his love for us alone. We labor steadfastly to do intentional spiritual good for one another to disciple one another because Christ's love for us and Christ's love for others. He always keeps his promises, amen? And he has promised never to leave us 
or forsake us. This is the last part of the commission, Christ's comfort. He is always faithful, perfectly, without fail. Jesus is not a variable in this equation. We are infinitely variable. We are constantly changing. The the adage is people don't change, but guess what? We're constantly changing. Day after day, experiences are shaping us and informing us and changing our opinions and our thought processes. But Jesus never changes. His authority and his presence are with us as we walk in obedience to make disciples. So I just want to spend the last five minutes practically giving you some helpful uh, ideas to begin to create a culture of discipling. It's what I call the core of discipling. It's costly, it's others-oriented, it's repeatable, and Brian, here's my $5 word for the week, it's eschatological. (laughs) We'll get into it. Discipling is costly. The work of discipling will cost you time, it will cost study, it will cost prayer, but most importantly, it costs love. Is this a price you're willing to pay? Think about those with whom you already have some level of relationship and ask the Lord to show you how you may serve that person and help them follow Jesus. If you're to teach them as Jesus commissioned in Matthew 28, you'll need to know what the word teaches. So it costs study. We won't teach it perfectly. I don't teach perfectly. When I stand before you in this pulpit, I pray that the Holy Spirit would would be our teacher because if I'm your teacher, good luck, guys. You're going to walk out of here with some wacky ideas. (laughs) But if the Holy Spirit's our teacher, with the Word as the foundation, then we're just growing and becoming more strong as disciples. And then we have to carve out time for those discipling relationships. As I've already said, one of the really practical ways to do that is just folding people into the patterns of our lives. But we see this modeled for us in the person and work of Christ. Mark 8, verse 34 says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will save it. So yes, discipling is costly, but it's worth every penny. We've found a treasure. Now let's go sell everything so that we can buy the field. Secondly, discipling is others-oriented. It's not about you. But here's the beauty is that in this community, if we work together to create a discipleship culture, or a discipling culture rather, and part of that culture is intentionally and actively orienting our lives toward one another, Someone else has your best interest at heart. This is the way a healthy marriage works. I don't do this perfectly, but the the objective is that if I put Amy's needs ahead of mine and she puts my needs ahead of hers, we have a happy, healthy, Christ-centered relationship. It's true in our discipling relationships too. Proverbs 11.25 tells us, Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. 
So let's follow Christ's example again here, who in Mark 10, 45 says, came not to serve, or came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Third, discipling is repeatable. The mere fact that you and I are in this building today is evidence that the work of discipling is repeatable. If it weren't, for, if it weren't uh, Christianity would have ended with the apostles, right? If Jesus said, go make disciples, and they didn't do it in a repeatable way, it would have ended in that first generation. It probably would have just ended with those 11. But they went out in the boldness of the Holy Spirit and made more disciples who made more disciples who made more disciples. Don't be the stopping point. I don't know how we would do it, but we could trace our spiritual lineage back to Jesus himself, person by person by person. Don't be the stopping point. Don't be the terminus. The very first command in all of Scripture is found in Genesis 1, verse 28, where God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Remember? Jesus has all authority. He gives us his authority. To have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So how does that apply to our Christian life today? If you are a family, that includes biological, that includes adoption, But whether you are a family or a single individual who is called to singleness, it is our command to be fruitful and multiply. Now, that's not biological. That's spiritual. This is something really cool, guys. Rhonda, you disciple someone, and they disciple someone long after you go to be with the Lord in glory. That's part of your legacy now. You have a spiritual grandchild, seven of them, and probably more than you realize. (laughs) More spiritual descendants than you realize. I could see how that would be confusing. (laughs) And then finally, and this is where we want to conclude, is that discipling is eschatological. It's just a $5 word for it's talking about the last days. It's the doctrine of final things. So the book of Revelation is is in the category of eschatology. How is discipling eschatological? How is it last days oriented? Well, many of you, you know, may be familiar with that, but you don't know how this applies necessarily. I want to draw our attention. You can turn there if you're quick. Colossians 1.28, where Paul says to the church at Colossae, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone, and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Well, when will we be presented? Again, in Mark Dever's book, Discipling, he says, proclaim the word now, present the saints mature in Christ when he comes later. And he goes on to say, the work of discipling occurs in the presence, but it has its eyes set on the last day. So don't be discouraged brothers and sisters, when you face 
the sinful failing of someone in whom you've invested as a disciple. Every day Jesus doesn't come back is another opportunity for that person to repent and trust Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We fix our eyes on that final day and we disciple one another with that final day in view.